Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show, my brand new free podcast. We have a big show today. In just a few minutes, we'll be joined by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, Dr. Tom Price. Are Republicans resurrecting a plan to repeal and replace Obamacare? Are we going back again? Better chances this time? We'll ask Secretary Price, uh, what are our odds? What's different? What's changed? Can we get this through? Then Steve Wynn will join us to explain why Republicans should change the Senate rules to be able to repeal and replace Obamacare with 51 votes. After that, we'll take an in-depth look at, yep, taxes. It's tax week next week. Tax reform. And Joel Farkas of the American Strategy Group will join us. But first, I'd like to share some thoughts of my own with you. Let's start with this. Some of you may have heard this already. This is a sheriff from Lake County, Florida. Uh, It's self-explanatory. Let's listen to the sheriff. I'm Lake County Sheriff Peyton Grinnell. Over the last month or so, I've had several phone calls from citizens in this county concerned about the number of overdoses related to heroin. I want our citizens to know that I am aware of this serious issue. I am asking our residents to please call and let us know if you know of a location that this poison is being pushed out to our streets. You can remain anonymous. To the dealers that are pushing this poison, I have a message for you. We're coming for you. As a matter of fact, our undercover agents have already bought heroin from many of you. We are simply awaiting the arrest warrants to be finalized. So, to the dealers I say, Enjoy looking over your shoulder, constantly wondering if today's the day we come for you. Enjoy trying to sleep tonight, wondering if tonight's the night our SWAT team blows your front door off the hinges. We are coming for you. If our agents can show the nexus between you, the pusher of poison, and the person that overdoses and dies, we will charge you with murder. We are coming for you. Run. We are coming for you, run. Uh, All right, that's a pretty clear message, unambiguous. It reminds me of my old friend Reuben Greenberg. He was the uh, police chief in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, he sent a similar message out to the drug dealers. He said, we're coming to get you. Uh, And you know what? They scattered all over the place. They went other places. This is what we need in this effort uh, against illegal drugs. We need offense, and we need law enforcement. If you pay attention to all the discussion about heroin, opioids, everything else, cocaine, meth, you will see that it's almost all focused on treatment, the abuse of treatment, the abuse of prescriptions, uh, how to make people well, etc. A lot of this is fine, and of course we're trying to make people well. But a couple things to bear in mind. First of all, recovery rates. When people get addicted to serious, seriously addicted to drugs, the success rate for recovery is small, less than 50%, more like 20 to 30%. Uh, it's hard. We should try to prevent this from happening in the first place. That means education. That means good policy in the schools. But it also means law enforcement of the sort the sheriff is talking about. I uh, analogize to a beachfront property. Uh, <clears throat> think of it in Australia, if not the United States, that is being terrorized. Uh, by uh, great schools of great white sharks. And the people continue to go in the water, which, of course, is crazy, but using drugs is crazy. Uh, and they go in the water, uh, and they lose limbs. Uh, let's just put it uh, indelicately. 
and they come off. And so we set up all these prosthetic limb uh, places on the beach or near the beach to give people, uh, you know, new arms and new legs. Okay, that's nice, that's generous, that's thoughtful, it helps people, helps some people. Also, damage is already done, and some people will never recover from it. But how about getting the sharks out of the water? How about addressing the problem where it is, uh, in the water? Uh, and that's what this sheriff is doing, and I admire him and congratulate him. There's another thing I want to point out, and I'll be talking to you about this more later. There's a lot of confusion right now in the whole discussion of opioids, uh, these, uh, this class of drugs which has a particular effect on the mind, that our problem, our main problem, is the abuse of prescription drugs. There is the abuse of prescription drugs, and it is a serious problem. But right now, when you look at the size and dimensions of the heroin problem in this country, it is larger than the abuse of prescription drugs problems. At least I think it is. doesn't matter which one is larger than the other. But the point is, people are going to heroin because it is so cheap. Uh, prescription drugs can cost you a lot of money on the street. 25 bucks, 50 bucks for one of those pills. Heroin, two bucks, three bucks a hit. And it, it used to be regarded as something that, quote, respectable people, close quote, would never go near. Heroin, needles, etc. Not anymore. That's broken down. I just want to put this up as a marker. We're going to talk about this greater length sometime in the near future when um, I'll have something to announce to you about a national organization I'm in, going to be involved with. But right now, the drug problem, especially the heroin problem, uh, and the prescription abuse problem, and marijuana and other things, is worse than it was uh, in the, uh, the 70s and 80s when we appointed the first drug czar, who was, that was, that was I. Um, it is a more serious problem where people are dying, and we need to pay much greater attention to it. So congratulations to that sheriff. I appreciate his work. appreciate his attitude. Hope others will speak like him and act like him. All right, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the Middle East. I'm still a little puzzled, scratching my head. I understand the argument that this was to show American power is back, and we have a muscular president. Glad to see that. This was to send a message to the uh, Syrians and to the Russians and to the Chinese that we're strong, not weak. Uh, great contrast to the Obama administration, I understand that. But apart from that, I'm confused. What's the distinction? Uh, barrel bombs are okay. These bombs aren't. I, I know some people say this is too picky, but how do you pick and choose here? Uh, I understand the suffering of the people in Syria. Uh, horrible suffering of these children. My heart goes out just like the president's heart goes out. But um, there's horrible suffering in a lot of places, arguably as bad or worse. In Central Africa, there are children who are locked in huts and the huts are burned uh, and the children are burned alive. Look what happened to the Coptic Christians there in, in Egypt. How about the forcible removal of babies from wombs for violating the one-child policy uh, in China? These are atrocities as well. Um, I do have a PhD in moral philosophy. I don't think these things are clear. I don't think these things are easy. Um, and I like seeing a good, strong, decent country strike a blow against a, a regime that's horrible. But I don't know where this goes. This doesn't finish anything. Uh, we know that uh, maybe they're not using sarin gas, but they're still bombing and killing babies like, like crazy over there in Syria. So I, I just am I'm, I'm looking for the rationale, the lines, the distinctions. Um, 
this will have to be clarified, if not in theory and in principle and articulation of principle, uh, then in practice. Let's go to the other side of the world um, where we are um, projecting American power uh, toward uh, the area of North Korea and China. Uh, we have uh, ships there, and um, we have been uh, sending a very clear message okay. since particularly this action in Syria. But we're dealing with a, a nut, teenager nut. Uh, how, I don't know how old he is exactly. But um, Kim Jong-il is demented. Oops, mistake, not Kim Jong-il. Kim Jong-un is his name. Kim Jong-il, I think, was his father, and his grandfather was Kim Il-sung, if I am correct. Uh, but it's uh, the current dictator uh, of the hermit kingdom is uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, he also has power at his fingertips. I'm worried. I just want to put down a marker here. I'm worried that there's something's going to happen. Some somebody is going to do something over there. Maybe him. Maybe he's a he. Maybe he's the most likely. But I'm worried that he's going to strike. Or maybe maybe the Russians will set something up somewhere in the Middle East. I believe that it's not fanciful to think that in the next weeks, months, we're going to see somebody hit back at us. Now, if they do, I don't have much question about what the president would do, and I don't lack any confidence about what he would do in terms of projecting American power. But I, I think the reason this is going to happen is partly because we started with Syria. Uh, as they say in the schoolyard, we started it. Of course, we didn't start it. It was started by Bashar Assad. But this recent round. And uh, people are not used to this projection of American power and going to want to resist it and push back and fight back. Uh, we'll see. Um, do I hope I'm wrong? You know, if if they did provoke us in North Korea and we struck back and took out that regime, the world would be a better place. So not entirely uh, would I regret it. But uh, I'm thinking of people in South Korea. I'm thinking about our troops. There are costs here. Anyway, uh, those are my thoughts. Uh, some of you will recall the conversation we had with Gordon Chang in a couple of podcasts ago. And... Um, the situation is uh, bears watching very much on the president's mind. We certainly uh, we certainly know that. Okay, folks, um, those are my thoughts on a couple of areas that are in the news. And now let's get on with the rest of the show. Delighted and honored to be joined by my friend, if I can say that, Dr. Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services for the United States of America. Good morning, Secretary Price. Good to be with you again, Bill. Thank you so much. And I'm following in your mold as being a member of the cabinet. It's just an incredible honor. <laughs> well, you you got a bigger job. I know you got a much bigger budget. You got a bigger budget than how many countries? <laughs> If, if, if the Department of Health and Human Services were a nation, it would be the fifth largest nation based upon budget. Isn't that something? Goodness gracious. I call you yeah, King Price. Good. King Price. All <laughs> no, right. no, no, no. No, no, I know. I, it's I know. an incredible honor. I'm the 23rd uh, Health and Human Services Secretary and the third physician to, to be in this role. Otis Bowen and Lou Sullivan preceded me as physicians as the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary. So. Sure did. I knew him well. Served with him. Before we uh, get to your business and our business, uh, can we talk politics a second? You're old district, because there's a lot of talk about Kansas, more focus on your district uh, and the special election there. Uh, when is that special election, Tom? Week from yesterday, the 18th. And it's a it's a primary that has, it, it's, called, it's a cluster primary. So there are 18 folks running, and, and uh, the top two will run off on, I think, June 
uh, June 20th. Okay, and then there's a Democrat-Republican uh, race. Not necessarily. It's just the top two. But it'll oh, the top be, two of both parties. Oh, No, just the top two of that cluster primary. It's everybody thrown in together. It's, gotcha. it's, it's very unusual for, for uh, the state of Georgia, but it's the, it's the way that, uh, that, we, uh, uh, that our it. state fulfills uh, uh, empty house seats. Well, it's a great district, uh, and you got great people. I was honored to go there for you once, and terrific. If they need Very me kind. back, they, they need me they, back they, this they time. They love you. They love Bill Bennett. You tell them I'll come back for this one. Let's go to business. All right. So, are we going to take another? We're going to take another shot at uh, at uh, reforming and replacing Obamacare. You know, I think what folks what would would be helpful for folks to know is that the conversations have never stopped, and and okay. and, and they're really. Uh, and I'm really heartened by that. I'm an eternal optimist, as you know, and 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 uh, I've continued to to be on the phone with folks, even though Congress is is out of session for a couple weeks here, uh, back home. But uh, we, we've been talking with with uh, a lot of folks across the conference, trying to make certain that we can push something forward uh, uh, once they return. And there's and there's a lot of uh, positive. Uh, inertia going on at this point. So I'm I'm optimistic about it getting done. Yeah, all right. So the media reports this thing was over, it's done. Oh, now we're, now it's being resurrected. Not really resurrected. Conversations really never stopped. That's oh, exactly. very important exactly. to know. And, so and the the important thing to appreciate for folks is I know that that, that your listeners do cuz they're they're an intelligent group and that is that the reason this is needs to be done is not because it needs to be done politically. The reason it needs to be done is because the exchange market, the individual and small group market that was that was uh, uh, de- destroyed and then created by Obamacare is failing miserably. Uh, we've got a third of the counties out there that just have one insurance company offering policies. Uh, right. Five states that just have one insurance company offering policies on the exchange. Premiums are up. Deductibles are up. A lot of people have an insurance card, but they don't have care because they can't afford the deductible. So uh, th- this is this is a system that may be working okay. for the federal government, uh, but it's not working for patients. And that's what the president is intent upon, making certain that we get a system that works for patients. I want to get to that point in a second, but let's just talk about this continuum. Are, are differences narrowing, the differences that we saw before? Are we getting closer to agreement, let's just say, in the context of the White House, the House of Representatives, the Republican side of the House of Representatives? Well, I, I think any time that, that that folks are talking, and it's not just people talking with with, with me or, or other representatives at, at at the White House, it's people talking with each other, which is incredibly important, and and uh, and and that's that's why uh, again I have that that optimism. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't begin to characterize it in in, in terms of how close we are, but uh, I, I think uh, again that we'll get there because every single person. Uh, uh, up there appreciates that the current system is failing and doesn't work, which is why we need to move in a better direction. Okay, well, it seems to be important to the president, maybe you could say a word about this to us who are untutored in economic things, to get this done before he puts his tax package forward. Now, this is obviously big time important on its own, big league, I guess I should say, important on its own. But uh, why is it important to try to get this in place, these reforms and replacement in place before tax reform? Yeah, two specific reasons. One is that uh, because of the way that the budget rules work in Congress, uh, this, they're, they're currently trying to get this bill moving forward through the 2017 budget resolution and reconciliation process, which allows for 
uh, it to be passed by just in the Senate by just 51 votes as opposed to to 60 votes. Um, and 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 the way that 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 it works is that the 18 budget resolution uh, will be used. The next budget resolution will be used for tax reform. But you can't get to the 18 until you exhaust the uh, the, okay. the 17. And if you do try to work on the 18, then you lose the ability to to, to do 17. Uh, the the second reason, which is probably more important, is that with the tax reductions. Uh, in the health care uh, bill, which are, are hundreds of billions of dollars of tax reductions over a 10-year period of time, that, that actually lowers what's called the baseline so that you can get a lower tax rate for the American people uh, in, their, in tax reform because you've taken care of uh, essentially a, a nearly a trillion dollars of, of, of tax on the baseline. So it's an it's a economic budgetary item that, that is, that, that's tough to, to characterize or tough to explain, but it means okay. that you can get to a lower overall tax rate for the American people uh, if health care is done first. Secretary Price, that's clearest it's been explained to me, and I, I get it now. Let me ask you two questions sort of coming from the outside here. You, you talked about the problems that people are having, and we hear about this every day. Um, what is wrong with the argument um, that uh, just let this thing die of its own because it is going to die of its own and then people will be begging for reform and replacement, which will make the path easier? Well, it, from a, from a, as the president has said, uh, from a political standpoint, that's, that, that might be the best thing to do uh, because right. uh, then people will be clamoring for a, a replacement that would be much more positive for the American people. Uh, the problem that, that he recognizes and that, and that we recognize uh, is clearly that, that if that if that were to occur, uh, and, and if we don't get any help from, from the Hill, then, then that may indeed be what happens. But if that were to occur, then real people get hurt out there right. from, a, from a, a health standpoint. And, and you don't and, want to uh, preside uh, over just, that. that at, at this point, that, 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 that is, uh, that's just not acceptable. That's very, it's a very interesting point, though, isn't it? I mean, the politics here may point in one direction, but uh, morality of leadership, your sense of responsibility goes in another uh, it's reassuring. One other thing, it seems that there's some kind of shift in public opinion, more favorable. Was this because some people, the large number of people who got on Medicaid uh, who weren't on before uh, thought, thought it might be taken away, so they're now supporting it? What accounts for this somewhat closer to 50-50 uh, support and, uh, and not support for uh, Obamacare? Well, I think it, I think it's the, the the attention that's been given to it and the misinformation that's out there. There, as you know, the, there are, there are folks out there that are saying that that, that people are going to lose their Medicare, lose their Medicaid, and the and the like. And and the the fact of the matter is that that just isn't true. The right. proposal that 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 has been put out there is is a significant positive reform of the Medicaid system that will actually allow states much greater latitude, would allow states much greater latitude and flexibility uh, in, to, to fashion a, a Medicaid program that works for their population, not that just listens to and responds sure. to the edicts from Washington, D.C. Um, and then, and then uh, obviously, the, 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 there are even some folks on Medicare who believe that, that uh, uh, they've been told that, that, that the reform would, would yeah. uh, change yeah. and, and take away their Medicare. That, and and uh, this is just patently untrue. And, and, and so people have been scared. And, and, and so that's why it takes time to, to, to uh, educate folks, to get folks up to speed on, on what the plan is. Uh, again, if you if you were to, to dissect the the separate components of of the bill that was proposed, uh, the greatest Medicaid reform, positive Medicaid reform in the history of of, uh, of the program itself, the largest entitlement 
reform in the history of the country, r- r- literally. Um, yep. a significant hundreds of billions of dollars yep. in tax reductions, the ability to, to uh, encourage work for those uh, able-bodied individuals without, without the children uh, in, in the Medicaid program, greater state flexibility for their entire health care system. Uh, all of those things are things that you and I and, and, and conservatives across the land have supported for years. And so um, it, 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 it was... Uh, it was um, um, uh, the conversation surrounding it just wasn't one that was uh, uh, resulted in the support that was needed in Congress, but I think we're getting there. Great. And let me just tell you, you've been very generous with your time, Secretary Price. Uh, that's the last question. Will we get there? Do you think we'll get there? Can you give me any kind of guess when do you think we might get there? Well, as, as the, the old line in, 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 uh, in Congress goes, we'll, we'll, we'll get there when we have the votes. And, and, uh, right. um, but I, I, think, I think we're close. I, I really do. I, I, I think that uh, within a number of weeks, uh, the Congress is out for these two weeks, bracketing Easter, and then once they return, I, I, I think we'll get back to it and, and, uh, and be able to get it done. And, and, again, I believe that it will get done because uh, uh, the, the folks representing the American people in Congress understand and appreciate that this is a the current system is a failing system, and we see that with the insurers that, are pull, that have pulled out of, of, of Iowa, uh, and, and more insurers are saying that they're not going to be able to, to offer plans in 2018. That's not occurring because of what anything that the current Congress or the current president has done. That's occurring because of, this, of the policies and the, and, and, the, and the programs that are in place from the previous administration, from Obamacare itself. So uh, we believe that it's important to, to, to move in a much more positive direction where patients and families and doctors are in charge of this and not Washington, D.C. Dr. Price, great to talk with you again. We appreciate the time, and we certainly appreciate your leadership. We look forward to an agreement soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks, Secretary Bennett. You take care. God bless you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, that was a great conversation with Secretary Price, and it leads us perfectly to our next guest, Steve Wynn. Steve, as you know, is the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts and the finance chair of the Republican National Committee. In this segment, Steve explains why he thinks it's time for Republicans to change the Senate rules so that they can repeal and replace Obamacare with only 51 votes. Republicans have been hesitant to do this, but they might be persuaded if they listen to Steve's reasoning. Take a listen. It's time that we stop using the Senate rules as a game of chess for personal power and rhetorical advantage. I believe that the Republican Party should change the Senate rules to 51 votes, and I think that they ought to correct health care in America in one complete, easy-to-understand bill that needs a majority to pass, not 60 votes. Okay. I'm very, I'm a student of U.S. history, uh, like a a caboose on your train, and I know where the 60-vote majority came from, Uh, and it started in 1789 when North and South Carolina and Georgia walked out of the Constitutional Congress, which, by agreement, the 13 colleagues said had to be unanimous. So without the three southern states... We're fighting over protection for slavery. There could be no United States. There'd be no Constitution. There would have been no Declaration of Independence. The same situation occurred during the during the Constitution, and Ben Franklin came up with the great the, the great compromise and allowed one house to be elected by popular vote and be you know be stacked according to population, but the other house, the other thirteen colonies, 
in their 13 states would each have an equal amount, two senators each or 26 senators. That wasn't quite enough for the Southern guys. They wanted more protection because a majority of vote in the Senate would have been in 26 senators, 13 colonies, 13 states, would have been 14, 14 only senators. They wanted it to be 16. So they agreed that there would be a supermajority needed before a bill could be considered in the United States Senate. Now, with 100 senators, that supermajority is 60 today. And there's two votes. I don't know if most people in the country know that when a bill comes from the House of Representatives, which is done by majority vote, a bill can't be considered by the senators unless it gets 60 votes. Then, after 60 of the votes have said it's okay to consider the law, then it only takes 51 votes to pass it. Ironically and fortunately, it only takes 51 votes to change the Senate rules. Yeah. It is not a law that there has to be 60 votes. It's only a rule. And I think that Mitch McConnell is going to have to face the music and cobble together 50 or 51 votes in the U.S. Senate, 50 if he includes the vice president, and take the Senate, rule, uh, uh, the Senate rules back to majority rule. The argument against it has been uh, uh, John McCain, for example, says, well, if we do that, then when the Democrats are in charge, they'll do it to us. Well, maybe they will. But I know this. The Republican majority in the House of Representatives is, is, is not fragile. The people always like to have sort of a Republican House. And I believe that if this administration straight away deals with health care, taxation, and other things with strength and conviction, I believe that uh, we will increase our majorities in the midterm. And I say that Mitch McConnell is going to have to cross the, the Rubicon, so to speak, and make up his mind to get 51 votes to change the Senate rules to majority rule, or we will have continuous gridlock. Maybe the Republicans will lose the Senate in the midterms, and but they'll keep the House, and it'll be Obama all over again. Donald Trump will be high and dry trying to do with executive orders what he can't do with the law, and we know how that ends up. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a street going one way to oblivion. Enough is enough. And that's a message that, that I believe is appropriate at this time. The Republican Party, if it believes that it can make a better life for Americans, ought to have the guts to pass the law and let the American people see the results of it. Or, in the alternative, they go the route they're going, sort of passing, we'll do by reconciliation, we'll take one thing, then, then we'll take, take step two, and if step two is clever enough, the Democrats will have to give us the 60 votes. Baloney. Yeah, I don't believe right. the Democrats will give the Republicans anything, because I think that's the way politics in America is today. It's blood sport. That's really... Uh, nobody gives a damn about the right thing to do. They want to keep... The politician wakes up in the morning and he cares about being elected again. I wonder if you've put this uh, forward to... Everybody passes through your office around election time. Or, I mean, an awful lot of people do. Have you put this forward to... Uh, and dear, would, you, would, you, would you choose to talk about it to Mitch McConnell, to Senate leaders, to, to Tom Cotton, to, to any of these guys, to Donald Trump? Understanding there's a moment for everything. Sure. 
And believe me, there are counterpoints to the, to the argument that I just made. <clears throat> First of all, can you get 51 Republicans to do it? Or are they so afraid of having it done to them later that they won't? Or are they on principle believing that the, the, the tradition of allowing the minority a chance to stop everything is constructive? I think we've learned, and those are high-minded people that believe that. I think that McCain, when he takes the position that he doesn't want to use what is ridiculously referred to as a nuclear option, what a negative way of describing something. There's nothing nuclear about going to majority rule. We run our lives on majority rule. Yeah. But anyway, they, these people, uh, they're not just afraid that it'll be done to them. They think there's something sort of holy and a higher higher principle about giving the minority a chance. And so a supermajority is sort of fair-minded. Well, in spite of the, the, the latent validity of a statement like that, it belies the truth of modern politics that the supermajority has been used to gridlock any constructive action in the United States of America. Yes. We've gone beyond that. Yeah. So I would engage in a debate with John McCain, who's a friend of mine, or Lindsey, or any of the other fellas, or uh, I, I don't know how Cruz feels about it, or, uh, or Rand Paul, or Mike Lee. These, these more conservative members of the Republican Party, and, and others who are more moderate, that subscribe to this principle of allowing the minority to have. Well, the minority... First of all, that word is misleading. The point is that when we elect a majority of people to represent us in Washington, that happens because the majority of us have said so. Donald Trump carried 65 or 70 percent of the counties, yeah. the places where people really live yeah. in the United States. And, and um, that is not a minority. The popular vote says, well, uh, because California and New York are so democratic. Because they're all filled with places of people who've been given promises that are not being kept. Yes, yes. So the Democrats Democrats have sort of the upper hand in the, in the African-American communities. When Trump went into the African-American community and said, what have you got to lose? Look, at, look around you. You've had democratic control of these cities for a couple of generations. Has any promise been kept? Yes. And that's not to say that there aren't some wonderful, democratic, high-minded, very dedicated people in various cities doing the people's work. You know, we, I, don't, I don't want to be categorical about this. Yeah. But generally speaking, the Democratic Party solutions in the inner cities have not been any example of success. If it was a business... We'd, had a cha- we'd have a change of management. All right. We have to leave it there for today, Steve. A fascinating discussion, as always, t- tying in very nicely with our Secretary Price discussion. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. I hope you agree with me. This has been a great show so far. Got to get even better. I'm delighted to welcome back to the program Joel Farkas. Joel is the director of the American Strategy Group. And each week, as you know, the American Strategy Group brings us important conversations on American security, national defense, and related issues. Go to amstrategy, amstrategy.org, or Facebook, 
facebook.com slash am strategy to learn more facebook.com slash am strategy to learn more now we all know that an essential part of american security is the economy and economic growth i remember the debates uh, back between romney and mccain where mccain said yeah i was overseas too but i was there as a soldier and romney's comeback should have been i was there as a businessman and when you're the arsenal of democracy it helps you win wars that's the truth Economic growth has a lot to do with national power, national prosperity, obviously, and national greatness. You can't have a strong military without a strong economy. As we learned in Syria this week, those Tomahawk missiles, well, they're not cheap. A key driver of our economy is our tax policy. Since tax day is right around the corner and tax reform is all the rage on Capitol Hill, let's dive into the topic. Welcome, Joel. Joel, what should be the main objective of tax policy now in our time to stimulate jobs, the economy, job creation, to give people more money to spend, all of the above? What's the main task? The main objective should be asking what will tax policy, regulatory reform, or banking reform do to create jobs? There's a lot of discussion about tax rates, but tax rules also are as important. And anything we do needs to focus on how we create jobs, not how we discuss the process or the rates or the rules. Tell me, uh, we all tend to focus on the rates. That's interesting, tax rates, tax rules. Give me an example of a tax rule that has uh, an effect or, or two examples. Every taxpayer, and particularly every business, is going to spend the next week or so reviewing not just how much taxes they're going to pay, but they're going to be reviewing when they pay a worker. And that is, uh, is, is, is okay. a big effect on, on how they pay taxes. They're going to look at when they buy something, when they make an expense. Is it a capitalized expense or a capitalized cost or an expense? If it's capitalized, then they have to go and determine whether or not they can depreciate it. And if so, how do they depreciate it? There's 20 different ways to look at it and how long they depreciate it. And then if they have uh, debt, the business debt, that becomes uncollectible, is it non-business or is it business? If it's business, it's treated one way. If it's non-business, it's treated another. Effectively, Congress and the IRS have created a set of rules that is trying to determine for the each and every business, what do they make a profit? Well, a business really functions on how, what their cash flow is, not whether or not some external agency tells them what their profit is. Basically, it uh, uh, creates their balance sheet for them. And the IRS and the, and the, and the congressional rules effectively try to for the businesses. They try to describe for them that even if they make an expense, it may not be deductible, which means the profits are overstated in many cases. And all the businesses try to do is make sure that they have their definition of profit is what their cash flow is. You just hit on something which I wanted to ask you, which I know you know a lot about. Why does the discussion always seem to focus on that question of revenue to government rather than job creation? 
Uh, one of the most oft-asked questions is, if you cut taxes, do you raise revenue? Most of the time you do. But that's not the real point, right? That is not the real point. Um, I think the discussion focuses on revenue to government is because government would like to increase their revenue. Donald Trump ran on and succeeded by winning, talking about creating jobs. And we, we, know, we know what creates jobs. We know who creates jobs. Job creation is created by new startup business and very young businesses. Businesses uh, younger than five years old create the vast majority, if not almost all, new jobs. Say that again. Say that again. Businesses younger than five years old, in addition to startup businesses, not necessarily the size of a business, but the age of a business, creates virtually all new jobs. Wow. That doesn't wow. mean they, they have all jobs in America, but they are the ones who are innovating and establishing and creating and growing fast. I see. Fascinating. I had no idea. And, and they are only a small percentage of the startups. I mean, they're the ones who make it, right? And most don't make it. It's very interesting. There's a lot of them who don't make it. Uh, yeah. Probably more than 40% don't make it. But the ones who do make it are the ones who create our new jobs. And they're not necessarily, again, just to repeat, I'm just pausing over these points because they're so interesting. These, they're not necessarily big numbers of people big numbers of jobs. It's just, it's the age rather than the number. Correct. The total employment uh, uh, in the country, certainly the large businesses employ the most people. That's, that's, that's cool. Sure. Uh, probably 40 to 50% of the people are employed by the large businesses. But the issue isn't just how many people are employed. We need to create new employment. New employment, new businesses new taxpayers pay more taxes. That creates more revenue. Okay. Got it. We hear a lot. We're talking about businesses. I, I, let me just insert this question. As you can tell, I'm not well-versed in this in this topic. I, I pay my taxes. I'm looking at my bill now. I'm not happy about it. And these are individual taxes. What's more important, Joel Farkas, for the economy? To lower the corporate rates, the business rates? rates for business, or the individual rates, or the capital gains rate, all three, I guess. My view, the most important thing for the economy is neither the rates for all of those, for all of those categories, but the ability to create the business, the ability to create the job. So the rules again, the rules rather than the rates? The rules. Okay. If you are a large existing successful business, you, you've established what the rules are, you can hire a team of attorneys and accountants to follow those rules. Uh, it's good, good, good job creation for attorneys and accountants. If you're a new business or a small business growing very fast, the last thing you have money for is to focus on those items. Regulatory policy has no economic impact to a new or growing business. There's no value of any sort to, to, have, to have regulatory compliance. So the most important, and furthermore, banking is, the banking industry and the lack of community banks is the biggest impediment to the businesses I'm describing. The banking rules effectively will only allow lending 
to significant established businesses. If you're a new or growing business, there's not one institutional bank that would be allowed or interested in lending to you. There's no capital available for those kinds of for those kinds of endeavors. So my opinion is the rules. I'm just wondering because we're having this beginning, this least this discussion. The president's beginning it about tax change, tax reform, um, and almost when you read read stuff in the media, it's almost all about rates. And you're saying the rules are in many ways more important. To your mind, does the does what the president have in mind or Paul Ryan have in mind comprise the the rules as well as the rates? I believe what. Uh, Paul Ryan and the president are discussing are important. I don't think they should not work on those rates. I don't think they should not work on uh, that focus. I think, though, what happens is the discussion over rates will take, in economic terms, almost geologic time to arrive at a conclusion. I believe that the president and Congress, the Senate and the House, could quickly, easily pass laws that could allow banking changes for for community banks. They could have changes to rules much, much faster so that we can establish these new uh, directions for the businesses I'm describing. We know how to measure whether these rules that would change succeed. We've had a decline of new business startups, new business innovation over the last uh, decade. A decline, not an increase. We will be able to measure when we pass these new rules whether or not that has succeeded almost instantaneously. So, so you would you would believe? I just I don't want the, I don't want the administration to miss this crucial point. You would believe that any kind of major tax reform from the president, from Ryan, from the committee, et cetera, will include changing the rules. It would have to, or otherwise it would be significant. Would have the reason to. is once again, this is the media. The only thing the media talks about is the numbers, the rates. You know. The rate is an easy thing to look at, 15%, yeah. 25% of yeah. what? And every time a, a, a tax bill is passed, it creates a set of new rules. Those rules need to be interpreted, and when those rules are interpreted, they will generally be interpreted to see if you have not paid enough. When you are being audited, you're not being audited to see if you've paid too much. You're being audited to see if you have not paid enough. Is there a country that gets taxes right? No. Or that's gotten tax reform right? No. Uh, or a state? How about a state that doesn't have income taxes? I, I kind of like those. I know my friend Art Laffer moved to Tennessee, you know. I said, Laffer, I don't think of you as a Tennessee guy. He said, no state income tax. Um, those states get it right. I would like to see the president and Congress pass a set of reforms for for community banking and taxes for businesses younger than five years, similar to to the no-tax states, which would effectively say, leave those companies alone for five years. Don't call them, don't ask them, don't talk to them. This is fascinating. We have time for two more questions. Your distinctions are new to me. I mean, the importance here, you know, rules versus rates and some other things. But what else is, as you watch the discussion, and you're obviously expert on this, is missing 
from the discussion. What else are people not grasping that's big, that's important, a distinction or a, a fact or uh, something else along the lines we have just been talking? The discussion tends to look at, as you started out with, how much revenue mm-hmm. a person or a business pays mm-hmm. and how that affects the government. What's missing is how we create more taxpayers. The issue okay. always it seems to pit existing endeavors, existing business, and what they will benefit from and what the government will benefit from. We are missing that we are trying to create something that does not yet exist, which is a new job in a new business. Okay. By creating something that doesn't exist, we're not taking anything away from something or someone that's doing something now. We're adding to our economy. All right. I want to see if I was a good student here. Would I be right that a great example of a, a good new business would be something like Uber? Because it didn't exist before. It's new. And it's actually pretty big. You are an excellent student because <laughs> Uber is a new business. And it started out very small and grew extremely fast and became very large. So the argument between big business, small business, which means big taxpayers, small taxpayers, is the wrong argument. It's the wrong discussion. It's the wrong focus. Uber is the perfect example. But given the uh, what you said earlier, not uh, replacing others, if cab drivers are listening in New York, uh, they wouldn't agree, right? They would not agree, but that's the next important point. Technology innovation does destroy other jobs. Efficiency destroys other jobs, but that's been going on for 5,000 years. New, New business is always destroying jobs from a prior endeavor, which is why we need to continually create new business. Uber did not do anything to do with new, uh, new technological advances in any other business. All yeah. it did was create a new place to, to uh, uh, anyways. Yeah. I wanted to, to mention one more uh, thing about uh, uh, how we can measure um, our success of creating new businesses. Economists are very bad at measuring a couple of things, human endurance and human innovation. So whenever we are looking at what a certain tax rate or policy will do. The one thing that is almost unmeasurable is what innovation does or what the capacity for humans to endure pursuing that innovation. That's why Mm -hmm. many of these discussions miss the mark. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's not a measurable coefficient. Got it. Great point. Listen, I, I, the, my closing, I, I talked to my accountant the other day, getting my taxes ready, and I've talked to him over the years, and he always sort of chuckles about efforts at tax reform, and he said, all right, we'll get ready because it's going to happen this time. I said, what? This is a big-time guy. This, he knows his way around. He said, it's going to happen this time. I said, how do you know? He said, I know. It's going to happen. Do you think it's going to happen? I do. Okay. And I think, I think it can happen. Um, I think Congress should be able to understand these points, put something on the president's desk, let him sign it. 
When we get close to that, Joel, can we revisit uh, this topic with you? Talk some more? I'd love to do that. Thank you, Joel Farkas, the American Strategy Group. Thank you very much. We just dipped in. There's a lot more here, but I learned something I know the audience did, too. Thank you, Joel Farkas, very much. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's a show. Uh, man, that's a, that's a lot to think about. I hope you agree it's a good show. I thought it was terrific. I learned a lot, and um, I even opined a little bit today. Hope you thought it worthwhile. Don't forget to follow us on iTunes, The Bill Bennett Show, and tell your friends, and uh, subscribe, you know, it's free. This is Bill Bennett. See you next week.